Again, I didn't choose this sermon if you're visiting us this Sunday because of the events going on. It's because of where we're at in the Lord's timing, working through Romans. We're in Romans chapter 11, looking at verses 25 through 36, and my intention is to complete this section of Scripture for us this morning. As MacArthur said, uh, this is one of those sausage sermons. You know, you just finish one and you cut it off and begin where you left off. We are beginning where we left off last week and continuing in these details that are in our text here. Horatius Boner had written this, the Scottish hymn writer, who lived from 1808 to 1889. He was a contemporary of Spurgeon. Bonar had written this particular stanza about Israel. He said this, Forgotten? No, that cannot be. All other names may pass away. But thine, mine Israel, shall remain in everlasting memory. Forgotten? No, that cannot be. The oath of him who cannot lie is on thy city and thy land, an oath to all eternity. Forgotten of the Lord, thy God? No, Israel, no, that cannot be. He chose thee in the days of old, and still his favor rests on thee. Nice poetic reminder of God's eternal promises to Israel. Fulfilling and even illustrating exactly what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 11 and verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has promised to fulfill his purposes with Israel. He has told them what he was going to do, that he was going to bless them, make them a great nation, set up a kingdom in their midst, set up a king in that kingdom who would rule for all of eternity and that all nations would come under subjection to that king. God has promised to the fathers these things and he will fulfill it. But how will he fulfill it? And what would that look like? What are we to understand about Israel's present rebellion? What are we to understand about all that is taking place even now? And this is what Paul addresses in Romans chapters 9 through 11. God has a particular place for this people, this chosen nation, this holy people whom he has made covenants and promises to, through whom we have also received the blessings. After all, the very word of God that we have in our hands comes through the Jewish people, comes through the Jewish prophets, it comes through the apostles all of whom were Israelites. In fact, most of the New Testament, save for two, possibly three books, third we don't know, the writer of Hebrew, but the book of Luke and the book of Acts comes from Luke, likely a Gentile, who as Colossians 4 describes as being associated with the Gentiles, not with the Jewish people. So likely Luke alone is the only Gentile having written a New Testament book. The rest of the New Testament written by Israelites. The whole Old Testament written by the prophets. Israelites received the oracles of God. 
The Israelites delivered to us the very oracles of God, the promises, through whom comes the promise of the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah who came through the Jewish people, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came and brought redemption for man. Forgotten? No. Under judgment? Yes. Israel is presently under the heavy hand of God, presently under great suffering, great difficulty, until the fullness of the times of the Gentiles arrives. Then there will be restoration. Then there will be fulfillment. As verse 26 indicates, then all Israel will be saved. Comes a point in which God is going to bring restoration. He's going to bring a deliverance. He's going to fulfill those promises that he has made. Remember last week that we were able to define the limitation to this all Israel. The all Israel is limited to all ethnic Israel. We know that from the context. Ten times the word Israel is used and every time from Romans 9 through Romans 11 that, ethnic Israel, or that word Israel is referring to ethnic Israel. And we notice by the end of verse 25, it is those alive at the time when the fullness of the Gentiles, this is a historic, a future event, a prophetic event, it's sometime off in the future. Whenever that fullness of the time comes, whether that's the last Gentile convert or whether that is the end of the church age, we don't know exactly. It's quite possible. It is reference to the last Gentile convert. And at that time, it would be those Jews who believe upon God, who believe upon Christ, the Messiah, as verse 23 indicates. If they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. God will restore them, and he is going to complete his purposes with Israel as he has promised. And as he is unfolding these details, God is giving us the big picture, even if he's not giving us every little detail in between. We certainly want, and we ask all the time, for all those little details to be filled out. And many come along trying to give us the details. Like in 1988, when they gave us 88 reasons why the rapture was going to happen in 1988. And then followed it up the very next year and gave 89 reasons why it was going to happen in 1989. Obviously, never came about. God has a plan for Israel. That plan will come and be fulfilled after God is done in this present age. This age of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. Gentiles having been grafted in at this present time will that work will be finished and God will graft in this Israel whom he will save. This has been God's promise. And it's always been the promise of fulfillment to Israel has always been to the Israel who believes. Not an indiscriminate entirety, but it is to those who had believed, ethnic Israel who had believed. It has always been God's promise. Verse 23, of course, indicates it but so does the Old Testament prophets. Let me just show you a couple of places. Turn back in the Old Testament, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Just point out a little detail here in Isaiah 53, setting up. And then you can also find in your Bible there, Zechariah chapter 12, because we'll flip over there. First, Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah the prophet, has from really from chapter 44 all through uh, 59, is laying out a case. God is laying out a case through Isaiah the prophet of God's coming judgment upon them. Judgment for their rebellion, judgment for them turning to the to idolatry, judgment as he is pouring out his wrath upon them. But mixed in that judgment is also promise of restoration, promise of the Spirit of God coming upon Israel and restoring them, promise of forgiveness, promise of deliverance. So as God is warning and ex- explaining to Israel what's going to take place, there is future judgment and there is restoration and the hope of deliverance. We come to chapter 53 and we see the suffering servant of Israel. But notice how this begins. Because all the, the, the whole, from verse 2 through 12, it's all a description of the, the Messiah and his suffering. Just notice, well, we'll just start in verse 2. Look at the suffering of, of the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Notice verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It continues on through the rest of the chapter, showing the description of the Messiah, the suffering servant. But notice back in verse 1, how Isaiah starts with this question, who has believed our message? Who has believed what God has said about what he is going to accomplish? Who has believed the message. That has always been the question pressed on Israel. Were you going to believe? You're going to believe what God has said about his judgments, about their suffering, about their rebellion, about what he's accomplishing, and through the one through whom he's going to accomplish this. It's been the question. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 12 and notice Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. The minor prophet Zechariah makes this comment in Zechariah 12:10. Says this: All the land. Actually, I was reading 14. Now 12:10 says this: I will pour out on the house of David, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. So there comes a time in the future when God says, here's the promise I'm giving. I'm going to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What is the promise of Zechariah is the promise that Israel is going to repent and believe. 
They're going to see the one they have pierced. They're going to see the one they rejected. They're going to see the one that they had turned over. They're going to see the one that they thought was being judged by God. And they're going to see that one, Christ, and they're going to believe. They're going to recognize what they had done. They're going to recognize their rebellion. They're going to come to a point in which they believe God They're going to see the fulfillment of all that God had promised. They're going to see all of this and they're going to understand their rebellion and they're going to weep. They're going to weep with bitterness. They're going to weep as if they had lost their very firstborn son. They are going to be broken, brought low. This was promised from the Old Testament through the prophets. It is also promised in in Paul as he is talking about all Israel who will be saved will be those who believe. Ethnic Israel alive at the time of the fullness of the Gentiles who believe upon God, who believe upon Christ. It's going to be restoration. Turn back to Romans 11. It's anticipated that there's going to be a restoration, a revival. It's going to come. Now, somebody might ask at this particular moment, well, if they are saved, if they come to Christ, if they believe upon Christ, then why don't they just join the church? How come they're not just a continuation of the church? Well, just a couple answers, again, from Romans 11 to point out to us. First of all, because the end of the Gentiles has come. The fullness of the age of the Gentiles has come. That's what he says in verse 25. That age is over. And that age, particularly if Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 is correct, was a mysterious age for a period of time for the Gentiles. But also because of verse 28. The second half of verse 28, because as he says, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Because God is turning back and completing what he has promised to the fathers. What he said to Abraham of making him a great nation. What he said to Moses. What he said to David. What he has promised from the Old Testament. God is going to return and fulfill his promises. There will be David's throne. Which will be established on earth. Which will be in a literal kingdom. And there will be a literal king reigning from David's throne. For all of eternity. Over the nations. Because that's what he promised. One more question that may come out of this. Say, well, how many will be saved during that time? How many will be brought to saving faith in the all Israel who will be saved? Are we talking about a few hundred? Maybe a few thousand? Are we talking about all 16 million? If we did the Google search today, we find out 16 million. Are we talking about 18, 20 million? How many are we talking about? Well, Romans 11 doesn't give us an answer. But Revelation 7 does. Turn over to Revelation chapter 7. We actually get the answer to the all, how many will be saved during that time. Revelation chapter 7 gives us the number. Starting in verse 1. What had happened at this particular point, just so you understand the flow of Revelation, at this point, the sealed judgments of God have been broken and spread out. We've had now six sealed judgments that have been poured out. The first 
is the false Christ that comes. The second is war. The third is famine. The fourth is death. The fifth is martyrdom. And then the sixth is terrors that are spread around. And then there's a pause in heaven before the seventh seal is broken. And the seventh seal, when it's broken, brings in then the trumpet judgments. And in this lull, in between, we find Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, it says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Basically, everything goes silent. Everything goes still. It's quiet. After great tumult, after great war, after great unrest, after all of this difficulty, everything goes still. Verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, one hundred and 44,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 144 Israelites, 144 from the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel will be saved. That number, 144,000, has historically have been the number that many have latched onto. Seventh-day Adventists, for example, have said that they are the fulfillment of the 144,000. You can go back to the teachings of William Miller, or Millerism, who had believed that in March 21st, 1843 to March 21st, 1844, in that time period, Jesus was supposed to return and take the 144,000 to himself. And the 144,000 were all those who believed in Miller's teaching, the Seventh-day Adventist teaching. And of course... Time came, the time left, the rapture didn't occur. Miller himself died a few years later, never seeing the fulfillment, always wondering what took place, figuring that there must have been a corruption in the text. He didn't get it wrong. It must have been a, some kind of corruption in the Old Testament text. Mormons teaching the same thing, 144,000 or 144,000 priests who go around teaching and training others and bringing people to himself so that they, that flock of God will go into eternal life. Everyone has come to this particular number trying to spiritualize and uh, this interpretation saying that it means uh, more than just ethnic Jew, it would mean Jew and Gentile in any particular group. But here it's very clear, two details to demonstrate for you, very clear that this actually lines up exactly with our text in Romans 11.26. First of all, notice back in verse 3. It says in the middle of verse 3, Until we have sealed the bondservants of our God. That word bondservants is the word doulos, servants. The word servants, that word doulos is what Christians have been called in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. The word doulos there. In Colossians 4.12, 
Paul, speaking to the Colossian church, spoke of Epaphras and says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Again, doulos, a servant. These doulos, these bondservants, are those who are bondservants of God, faithful believers in God. They're the ones sealed. First truth, second aspect, verse 4 tells us they are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They are ethnic Israelites. Ethnic Israelites who believe, ethnic Israelites who have trust, trusted in Christ. They're the ones who will be redeemed. And there will be an exact number, 144,000. Now, the terrifying fact is this. There are a lot more than that alive today which means there's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution. And I want you to see that this has been anticipated. Turn over to Daniel. I'm taking you on a whole Old Testament journey here. But turn over to Daniel chapter 9. And you see this. There's great suffering. God has anticipated this. He's talked about through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 30, he talked about the day of Jacob's sorrow, suffering. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is given a revelation from the angel Gabriel, told about what is to come. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, is the prophetic timeline of what God is going to accomplish from that moment in Daniel's history to the end of God's prophetic work. It's laid out. It's laid out in the 70-week vision. And I just want to point out a couple of verses here. Start of all in verse 24, what was anticipated. It says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring up everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Six things that God is going to accomplish in his redemptive work. What is all of prophecy pointing to, what is all of prophecy heading towards is to fulfill these six objectives. The first, to end Israel's rebellion against God. The second, to end sin's rule in the world. The third, to atone for sin. The fourth, to bring in righteousness. The fifth, to fulfill what every prophet had prophesied about. And then sixthly, to establish God's holy kingdom. Those six objectives are God's objectives in prophecy. Anytime we're working through prophecy of something that has not yet been fulfilled, it is going to fit into one of these six categories that, that this prophecy has anticipated through Daniel. Now what is significant are these terrifying words that are brought out in verse 26 and verse 27. You have in verse 26 it says then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off. So this particular prophecy talks about the seven years of the restoration of Israel 62 more years until the Messiah comes and then is cut off and then the final seven-year period of time of tribulation. 
He says in this that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now notice this. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The word war and desolations. There's coming anticipation of great suffering and difficulty. Verse 27 And he will make a firm covenant with the many for the one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wings of abominations will come, notice, the one who makes desolate, even to a complete destruction, one one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The word desolate, destruction, wars. There's anticipation of great sorrow and suffering and difficulty. And if you're saying, I want to know what that means, go listen to my message in Romans 9. It's there on our website. You can listen to all that. But what you need to see is this. God has anticipated a time of great sorrow and suffering for Israel. He has decreed it. Great suffering, great difficulty, time of weeping, a time of sorrow. But in the midst of that sorrow and suffering, they're going to look upon their Messiah. They're going to see their Messiah, the one that they have rejected, the one that they have turned against, and they're going to see the one they have pierced, and they're going to believe. They're going to call upon him. All that sets us back up to Romans 11, 26. Now we can turn back to Romans 11 and 26. Paul said there's a plan for Israel. A plan of restoration, a plan in which God is going to fulfill his purposes with them. All that we just talked about there, a restoration of, of Israel that will turn back to their Messiah and believe. And now Paul, from verse 26 and verse 27, defends this again from the Old Testament. He defends it from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. He, he, he defends it by quoting the end of, of Isaiah's instruction And drawing attention to there is a plan of restoration. And these two verses indicates that restoration. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to come and he's going to bring restoration. He's going to separate the ungodly from the godly and he's going to bring out the godly ones in Jacob. This is, verse 27, my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I fulfill all of my purposes, which I have declared. Again, that is the fulfillment of, Isaiah, or of Daniel chapter 9. The intention is to atone for sin and to remove the rule of sin and to set up his godly city. When this time comes, he is going to bring out his people. It's going to bring restoration. Deliverance. It's going to bring a a time again when Israel will receive the favor of God again and be fully restored. Israel's rebellion ended. The wicked destroyed and removed. The righteous protected. The kingdom established. Now we might ask at this particular point, What should our attitude be towards Israel then? If God is going to do this, if God is going to restore, what should our attitude be towards them? And verse 28 answers that question for us. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. 
But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Here's our attitude towards them. Right now, they're in rebellion. Right now, they are hostile. Right now, if they have not turned and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they are in in opposition to the purposes of God, and they are under God's mighty hand of judgment. They're not an outdated relic, past era left behind. They're not a people forgotten by God. They are presently in rebellion so that we may receive the gospel. They are presently in rebellion that the grace of God may spread to all the Gentile nations and proclaim the riches of God's grace that there is salvation in Christ. Presently, while they are enemies of the gospel, it is for, as Paul says, for our sake, for your sake, for we Gentiles who believe, it's for us. But the second half of that, but from the standpoint of God's choice, That is, from God's election, from God's determination, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. There is a future plan. There is a purpose. God is going to accomplish his good purpose. He's going to bring about redemption and deliverance. And he's going to do it, notice, for the sake of the fathers. He's not doing it for us. He's not doing it for them. He is doing it for the fathers because he had promised to the fathers what he was going to accomplish. As verse 29 indicates then, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot change his mind. He's not a man that he should lie or change his mind. He's the immutable, unchanging God who isn't thwarted by Israel's rebellion. He isn't set off course because of their rejection. Their rejection of the Messiah didn't change anything about his eternal purposes or plans. Their rejection of the Messiah didn't send him scrambling to figure out, what did I get wrong here? Why did I pick this people? Their rejection of the Messiah didn't cause God to have to go to plan B. In fact, that is exactly what the prophets and the apostles declared in the book of Acts. It says, Jesus, whom you rejected, whom you turned over, God put him there. All of these things were accomplishing God's good purposes. Because it's, again, as it says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's going to accomplish his purposes. Now, that leads us to the concluding out argument of Paul. Paul summarizes the whole thing for us. Verse 30 through 32, he kind of just summarizes the whole thing for us and answers the kind of questions that we have left. Notice the summary of his whole argument. If you're like, what is all Romans 9 through 11 about? Right here, verse 30 and 31, is the summary of the whole argument. Verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. First part of it. You and I have mercy because God showed us mercy because of Israel's rebellion. Because they were rebellious, because they were hostile, because they rejected the Messiah, God poured out mercy upon us. He took his favor and granted it to us because they had rejected. 
First part of his argument. Second part of his argument, seen in verse 32. So those also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. The second half of the argument, well, because the disobedient ones who are disobedient for our favor, they are also going to receive mercy. And the question would be, why? How does all of this work? It was really the begging question that's been in our mind from Romans 9 through 11. Why is this so complex? Right? Why so hard? Why a people that you had who you then rejected, received another people who you're then going to reject or you're then going to fulfill your work with and then go back to that first people? Is it so hard? I mean, it seems to me, Pastor Rag, to take your view, we need an advanced degree. You need to share some of your degrees with us. It's too complex, too academic, too difficult to fully grasp. We can jump into Rome, into Daniel chapter nine. And you have seventy weeks, and that you have seven, and then you have sixty-two, and then you have one, and that one is then split into three and a half and three and a half. It is too much. In fact, that is what the president of Southern Seminary stated recently in an interview: to believe the view there is too complex, too demanding. Why can't it just be simple? Why can't we just recognize the one people of God? We have to make all of these distinctions. Well, verse 32 is the answer to all of that. What is God doing? He has, again, brought about rebellion in Israel so that the church, the Gentiles, can receive grace. And then when he's done, he's fulfilled his work with the Gentiles. When that is completed, he's going to go back and he's going to Cause those Israelites to turn and believe. Provoke them to jealousy and they will believe. Why? For verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. The answer? So he can humble everybody. That's why we diligently defend Romans 9 through 11. That's why we spend so much time working on this section and not ignoring it. Because man needs to be humbled and recognize that we enter into eternity by mercy, not by privilege or right. We don't enter into eternity because we have earned some kind of favor with God by our heritage, by something owed to us. And can you imagine, just for a moment, and a little sanctified reasoning here, this is not true, but if we just sanctify reasoning, could you imagine if Israel never rebelled? If they had received the covenants from the Father, believed, never turned, the Messiah came, they received their Messiah, and now they're in heaven, can you imagine how they would treat Gentiles for the rest of eternity? I'm glad you showed up, but we're the chosen people. We never rejected the Messiah. We've always been the holy nation, the royal priesthood. We have been the people of God. But we're glad you're here. We're going to be in the inner holy of holies. We're going to be in the inner sanctuary where we've always worshipped, and you stay on the outside. You think, well, that's far-fetched. We'll go back and read your Old Testament and wrestle through the, how Israel set up their worship service. 
You had the inner holy of holies that only the high priests enter. And then you had the men, Israeli men, who entered into the holy places. And then outside of that, you had the women and children. And outside of that, you had the gates of the Gentiles. They were on the far outside, never allowed to come on the inside. For all of eternity, if they had never rebelled, never turned against their God, they would have stayed in that privileged position, having been exalted. And put the shoe on the other foot. Can you imagine a Gentile who entered into heaven and then stands in heaven now believing that they have replaced Israel? Ha, you failed. I got the promises. You couldn't keep the covenants. I have the grace of God. We're here as the church taking over everything that was promised to you. We have received it. No. Verse 32. For all of eternity, God has silenced every group, reminding them of their disobedience to remind them of this thing. You enter in by mercy. Mercy alone enters it, causes us to enter into eternal life. Not privilege, not something we have done by heritage or example or passed on to our families. It is by God's mercy alone. Don't enter in uniquely by some ethnicity, as if we're given a, a privileged position because of our ethnicity. No, we enter in by mercy All of God's plan and work is to bring humility among all of his people. And while humility, demonstrating that we all enter by mercy, there is still distinction and uniqueness by ethnicity. Yes, he has a plan for Israel, his people, his truly chosen nation. But he also is working out his present plan with the Gentiles, the church age as he is bringing about redemption. Glorious head of the church, the Messiah, is also the same Messiah who's going to redeem his people, Israel. For all of eternity, these two groups are going to be humbled by the mercy of God, humbled by their own disobedience and undeserving nature, and they're going to be reminded of the riches of God's grace. So that we would then say, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And for God to think for all of eternity, what is most important is this. For me to redeem people, bring them into my kingdom, and to humble them all. That's not how we think about Scripture. We think about Scripture, what is it in for, what is it for me? What do I get out of this? God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for me that I might be exalted. We think about our exalted glory. No, what will be on display for all of eternity is the depths of of the wisdom and knowledge of God. As he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I cannot even begin to grasp and comprehend that for God to fulfill his promises to Israel, there is great suffering ahead. I'm in terror thinking about that. 
And yet I am in awe of God's faithfulness to his people. Verse 34 and 35 is a a reminder to us that we are nowhere in this equation. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I don't know the mind of the Lord. Couldn't even begin to guess. And even as he's unfolded for me what he believes, what he is taught, what he is, he's given us instruction through his word. We are only know what he has revealed to us. Or who became his counselor? Certainly many so-called prophets today running around saying how they have instructed God. No, no one has given God counsel as to how God should operate. God didn't come and get our advice when he's working at redemption. Or verse 35, who has, been, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? The idea is, who has God come to and taken a loan from us? He hasn't come and received a loan from us to be repaid back. He hasn't borrowed from us. He hasn't taken anything from us that he would owe us later. He hasn't sought our wisdom, our instruction. He isn't looking for our understanding, and we couldn't possibly grasp all in the mind of the Lord. We were not part of this equation at all. So that verse 36, the last truth in this, Paul lays out. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is the sustainer and holder of all things. It's directed to him. It is for him. He is the object of it all. He is the one who is the focus. It is to him be the glory forever. Amen. It isn't to Israel and their greatness. Israel points to God. It isn't to the church and their greatness. The church points to God. If we put ourselves at the center of that, when we miss the whole point here, it is to his glory forever. And how do we get to the point where it's his glory forever? We have to first be humbled by the awareness of our own need for mercy. So many people running away saying, I don't like that church. It speaks too much about truth, too convicted when you leave. Well, then you don't know the mercy of God. You're keeping the mercy of God from you. If that is your mindset, you need to understand that we are brought low so that mercy of God is the reminder how we enter into eternal life. Everyone, every redeemed individual who stands in heaven praising the living God is there by God's mercy alone. Nothing else. So that we could say, verse 36, to him be the glory forever. He is the object. He is the focus of all of eternity. Yes, Israel has this privileged position as God's chosen nation and holy priesthood, position of great honor and privilege, but a position received by great suffering and difficulty. And yes, we, the church, Gentiles, Jew and Gentile who in this church age believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and received a marvelous grace. But we are dependent on the foundation of the work that God has done in Israel. Not separated. Now really just 
causes me great grief when people today over ethnicity divide because they understand you don't understand the mercy of God. If you're dividing over ethnicity as if one is greater than another, then you don't understand the redemptive work of God who brings from all tribes and tongues people together for one reason, because God is lavish to pour out his grace and mercy. And any kind of pastor or prophet, priest or anything else that would preach anything different doesn't know the mind of God and the purposes that God is accomplishing. Exalting a particular ethnic group at the expense of another demonstrates you've missed God's work. He is bringing about redemption so that he would be the first place in all things and that he would show honor to his people, Jew and Gentile. All this, again, to the praise of the glory of his grace. All of this so that he would receive the glory forever. That's why he's working. And that is the high point of Romans 9 through 11. And then next week, we turn and we start to look at all the practical implications of this for us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these humbling truths, these profound riches that are given to us. Indeed, we are aware that we are unworthy undeserving but I also ask that we would not be jealous in our hearts for that which you have promised for another for with great reward comes great consequence and great demand the high exalted position of Christ came with great suffering and difficulty where he laid down his life The high privilege and responsibility of Israel comes with great suffering and difficulty, constant threat, constant attacks. Even now as they're experiencing these attacks, we are grieved. They have no security, constantly trying to to stay ahead of their enemies, wondering and even now feeling abandoned by you. We pray in this age, in the church age, that they would see your mercy upon the church and by jealousy be turned that they would believe. But if that not be the case, if the fullness of Gentiles shall come before then, as you have determined, we pray for your hand to be merciful as you rescue and draw to yourself your chosen people and demonstrate your fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. And all this we are both in awe and in wonder of what you're accomplishing. But we ask, may it produce within us that appropriate fruit. May it produce within us humility and brokenness. May it produce within us love and appreciation. May it produce within us gratitude for the riches of your mercy. For indeed, we do not earn and have not earned a privileged place in eternity. We received it by an expression of your grace, to which our response to your grace and mercy is that of adoration and praise and devotion and loyalty and servitude. For we long to serve you in all things because you have set us free to love you with our whole lives. So may this always be our reminder as we press on, recognizing we are undeserving servants. 
receiving the riches of your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.